I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Houston, Texas. The city was founded by brothers Augustus and John Kirby in August 1836, naming the city after Sam Houston, the revolutionary who fought for Texas's independence from Mexico. For nearly 10 years, Texas had declared itself a sovereign republic until its annexation into the United States. Now, with more than 2.3 million residents, the city is the fourth most populous U.S. city behind New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. In 2012, Houston surpassed Los Angeles and New York as the most ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the nation. Within the greater Houston area, over 145 languages are spoken by its residents, and 90 nations now have consulates located there. It's no surprise that the city has more than 10,000 restaurants, representing the culinary diversity of more than 70 countries and regions across America. Faced with these gastric delights, Houstonians eat out more often per week, 6.9 times, than any other American city. Beginning with the leadership of Sam Houston, Texas law enforcement has long been known for its tenacious pursuit of criminals. But in 1982, the shocking murders in an upscale neighborhood put this tenacity to the test. And in the end, everyone learned, don't mess with Texas. At around 3 a.m. on June 10, 1982, in the wealthy Memorial neighborhood of Houston, a maid who was living above a garage apartment on her employer's property heard banging at her door. It was the two young boys, ages seven and eight, who lived at the residence with their grandparents. The boys told her that their grandparents had read on them and that something was wrong. The maid yelled up to the second story window of the master bedroom but got no response. She then had the oldest boy call his great uncle, J.W. When J.W. and his wife arrived at the property, he called 911. Houston police officers arrived at the home to find a small group waiting outside for them. J.W. Campbell introduced himself, saying the home belonged to his brother, James Campbell, and his wife, Virginia Campbell. And Kathy's were actually the grandparents of the two boys, but the boys called them mom and dad. J.W. explained to police that he was called there by the maid. He said that his wife and the maid went upstairs, saw blood, and came back outside immediately. Because he had a bad back, he did not go upstairs. Officers went inside and noticed nothing seemed out of place. No drawers were opened or furniture overturned. The home did not appear to have been ransacked. Officers then went upstairs to the master bedroom and found a horrifying and bloody scene. James and Virginia were dead, both having been shot multiple times. Homicide detectives were immediately called to the scene. According to a book by Clifford Irving, entitled The Campbell Murder Case, A Saga of Texas Justice, it appeared as though Virginia had never awakened, but James had one eye open. There was speculation that he was trying to reach for his gun when he was killed. They saw blood spatter on the ceiling, headboard, lamp, mirror, and walls, and of course on the bed. Detectives determined the killer had entered through an open window in the den. They noted that victims were still wearing expensive jewelry and watches, and therefore did not believe this was a robbery. The detectives found 45 caliber shell casings, indicating that hollow point bullets were used. 
There was no powder residue, and they estimated the shots were fired from six to eight feet away, with each victim being shot in the head and the chest. At the time, the only thing obvious to police was that the prominent lawyer and his wife, who were both 55 years old, had been executed in their sleep. Investigators also found a plastic glove on the floor near the front door. They confirmed it did not belong to the EMTs, so they believed it was possibly from the killer. Police found no prints on the windowsill, but did notice a man-sized boot print in the flower bed under the window and cigarette butts. Adding to the tragedy was the fact that the Campbell's young grandsons, who had been living with the Campbells for three years, were sleeping on the floor at the foot of the bed. According to Clifford Irving's book, the boys had watched Star Wars on the VCR until past midnight and fell asleep, burrowed in the blankets. Now, Kath, what the maid actually told police was that every Friday and Saturday night for like the last three years since the boys moved in, the boys were allowed to sleep in their grandparents' bedroom as a treat. Because they were there, the police, of course, tried to talk to them. Neither boy was able to identify any intruder, but the older boy saw a figure at the bedroom door that he said quickly vanished. He woke his younger brother, tried to talk to his grandfather, remember one eye was open, so he probably thought he was awake, but then when his grandfather didn't respond, he took his brother and ran down the stairs to Maria Gonzalez's apartment. Kath, one thing I read that I thought was humorous, if there was anything humorous in the situation, was that the detectives talked to each of the children and the oldest boy, the eight-year-old, invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. (laughs) (laughs) So the detective started asking him about that evening and he said, I have the right to remain silent. And he wouldn't answer the questions. Did he watch too much TV? (laughs) Well, James and J.W., his brother, were both lawyers. So I'm sure he grew up with the lingo. But I just about died when I read that. So when they actually questioned the boys, like the investigators, obviously, they're not going to push. But they told J.W., hey, this older boy here invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. Let's just get him comfortable and let him know he can talk to us. Right. After this horrific murder, Kath, J.W. took the boys home with him to live. Neighbors told detectives that the Campbell family appeared to be happy. James was characterized as a lovable rogue by his friends. He was a gregarious man and an aggressive advocate for his clients. Virginia was characterized as witty, happy, and somewhat ostentatious. She had actually been James's secretary and paralegal in the early days, and the two wound up falling in love and getting married. James's practice proved to be successful, and they moved into the Memorial Park neighborhood to raise their children. The couple had four daughters, Betty Ann, Michelle, and both of them were in their 30s, and Cynthia and Jamie, and both of them were in their 20s at the time of the murders. The Campbells were described in the press as millionaires, but police quickly learned that most of their money was actually tied up in real estate investments. Apparently, they owned acreage as well as rental properties. But no longer needing to work, James was actually considering retiring. He and Virginia enjoyed taking trips and had recently returned from Europe at the time of their murders. And you know, Kath, one of the things I read in every single paper was that James died at 55 and Virginia was 50. But it turned out to be untrue. She just lied about her age to everybody. Every single newspaper I read got it wrong. Isn't that funny? That is hysterical. However, I had a great grandmother who did that. She lied so much that it's wrong on her grave marker. Are you serious? Yes. And the reason I found out is I was doing family genealogy history. Uh Uh-huh. And her birth certificate gives a date five years earlier than the one that's listed. 
I actually talked to my aunt about it and she said it was actually my grandfather who took care of the grave marker. And so, you know, he never knew. He just went by whatever his mom said. That is hysterical. Isn't that funny? So you're, you're going to be one of those people who lies about your age. You totally will. <laughs> You'll be like 75 and you're going to be like, I'm 62. <laughs> no way. I'll be 55. <laughs> exactly. My grandma was also a liar. <laughs> God rest her soul. But I don't remember one of my sisters was with her when she got pulled over not far from my house. And she would not give the police officer her driver's license because she didn't want him to see her age. Oh my God, that's hysterical. Now she's in her 70s at this point. <laughs> hey, and she's a proud lady. Oh, trust me, sister. Yes. Like, I think your grandmother and my great grandmother would get along really well. Oh, totally. <laughs> They'd totally be buddies. Anyway, so the officer was saying, you know, ma'am, you have to give me your driver's license. And she goes, do you know who I am? Uh, did he? No, oh. <laughs> because she was just a little old lady at that point, you know. <laughs> anyway, he eventually just let her go. He said, have a nice day and slow down. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, she probably sped away. She probably did. She probably peeled rubber. <laughs> <laughs> little side note, when my grandmother was visiting one time, she was parked by a fire hydrant and she was sort of notorious for not being the greatest driver. And as she's driving away, we are all waving to her and she's going to pull away from the curb and turn around. Is this at the house where your parents are? Exactly. Okay, I know she, what you're talking she about. She pulls away from the curb and she was so close that the fire hydrant catches her bumper and like tears it like halfway off. <laughs> but she has no idea. She just drives away smiling and waving. And, and you guys didn't stop her? Oh, no. We were laughing hysterically oh. and trying to flag her down. But off she went. <laughs> At least she didn't pull off like a side of the fire hydrant and have it like start squirting water out I know, everywhere. <laughs> seriously, it was like, oh my gosh. According to an Associated Press article in the Tyler Morning Telegraph, the police said they had no motives or suspects. Homicide Lieutenant B.J. Beck was quoted as saying, you have two people killed and there's nothing taken, so it's probably some revenge type thing. Detective C.W. Kent said someone apparently had a grudge against them and killed them or had them killed. The person apparently knew precisely how to get where he wanted to be in the house and do what he wanted to do. Because the only items that appeared to be missing were Virginia's wallet and James's briefcase, detectives thought perhaps a client of James's decided to get revenge for an unhappy legal outcome. But after interviewing James's employees, they discovered that he had no criminal clients. He only practiced civil litigation, and although he had skirmishes, Kath, with opposing counsel, detectives couldn't find anything they believed was worthy of a revenge murder. What's a skirmish with an opposing counsel? Like verbal? <laughs> yeah, no. I read somewhere that he actually kicked one of his opposing oh. attorneys in the leg. <laughs> I didn't put that in here because I was like, you just don't know if that's true. But since you asked, I'm telling you. I would become an attorney if I was allowed to right, do that. Exactly. <laughs> detectives also looked into the possibility of JW being the murderer. They found it odd that he did not go upstairs to the bedroom, but rather allowed his wife and the Campbell's maid to go up. However, they could not discern any benefit to J.W. to murder his brother. J.W. was the executor of the estate, but not a beneficiary. And he and James ran a successful law practice together and seemed, by all accounts, to get along well. After talking to people closer to the family, it became clear there was tension in the family. Maria Gonzalez, the Campbell's maid, was interviewed with an interpreter. She told detectives that the boy's mother was Cynthia, who went by Cindy and did not live with the Campbells, although her boys did. Maria confirmed that the two boys lived with the Campbells full time. Maria also told detectives that Cindy lived in an apartment owned by the Campbells and did not pay rent. She said James and Virginia Campbell supported Virginia's mother and allowed her to live in the same apartment building as Cindy, also rent free. 
Maria said Cindy had been divorced for about six years from the boy's father. She told detectives that the Campbell's relationship with Cindy was very strained and that they did not even allow her current boyfriend, David, into their home. Kath, I read that he had apparently called Maria crude names in the past, and that's why they banned him. But with what I was reading, I never saw if there was more to it than that. I think that's all it was. And I think specifically he called her a fat whore. I love the fact that they stood up for her. Oh, yeah. They took her side over his. Yeah, absolutely. Maria also told detectives that she had been finding trash in the yard and flower beds recently as though someone was staking out the house. Virginia Campbell had recently told Maria she was concerned about Cindy's ex-husband coming to look for the boys. Cindy was the only Campbell daughter who lived in Houston. One sister lived in Austin and two lived in Tennessee. After their grisly discovery of the bodies, Houston detectives drove to the apartment building where Cindy and her grandmother lived in separate units. They gave the heartbreaking news to her grandmother that her daughter Virginia and her son-in-law James had been murdered. The grandmother then took them to Cindy's apartment, but there was no answer. Concerned for Cindy's safety, the grandmother let them into her apartment, but Cindy was not there. And Kath, the detectives, as well as Cindy's grandmother, were appalled at the filth in which she had lived. Apparently, there was trash all over and mold, and it was extremely disgusting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. When Cindy returned to her apartment with her boyfriend, David, it was her grandmother who broke the tragic news. Detectives wanted to speak with the Campbell daughters in person to find out who could have wanted their parents dead. And by late morning on the day of the murders, the three women from out of town had come back to Houston and gathered at their childhood home. When they spoke with detectives, each said they had spoken with their parents in the days leading up to the murder and that things seemed normal. But because James's briefcase was missing, detectives asked about their father's clients. None of the Campbell women knew any clients who would do their father harm. When Cindy showed up with her boyfriend, David, the two were interviewed separately and asked their whereabouts on the night of the murder. Cindy said she had gone to her parents' house late that evening to borrow money. Her mother gave her $10 and she left without seeing her boys. Um, should I do a quick inflation calculator on that? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. But if the people ask for it. <laughs> exactly. So she said she and David went to a club and left at about 2 a.m. They then went back to David's house and slept until about 3.30 or 4 a.m. when they got up and went to a party in the neighborhood. David gave investigators the same information, except he put the early morning wake-up time around 3 a.m. and said they arrived at the party at about 3.30 a.m. David named the friends he saw there, and then he and Cindy went to a breakfast place until about 4.15 in the morning before going back to his house to sleep. Detectives were able to interview witnesses who vouched for Cindy and David's whereabouts on the night of the murder. From Maria, detectives knew the boy's father had no custody rights. Looking at all angles, police thought perhaps that the boy's father held bitterness against James Campbell for having represented Cindy in the uncontested divorce proceedings that severed his parental rights. Kath, what I think happened was that James Campbell said to Cindy's ex-husband, we're not going to seek child support payments if you just go away. From everything I read, that's how I think it played out. And so his rights were severed. The detectives also asked Cindy about her ex-husband. She confirmed that he had a criminal record, but stated that she had not seen him in recent years and did not know where to find him. Forensics could not tie anyone specifically to the scene. They found no fingerprints in the home that didn't belong there, and the glove left at the scene had no discernible prints. 
Detectives knew their only hope was to find a strong motive for the murders. Now, Kath, before their parents' funeral, which was almost two weeks after they were killed, relations between the sisters began fraying. Of the four Campbell sisters, Cindy was always the odd man out. She ran away when she was 17, not for the first time, but this time she got married. She lived hand to mouth with two kids, and she was always known as the artistic daughter. So apparently she had psychological problems for which she sought counseling. And I didn't read anything about a specific issue being at the root of this, but it was opined that she may have been bipolar, which makes sense in 1982. And I think that opinion probably came in later. It was the kind of thing where they're looking back at all of her symptoms and going, huh, maybe that was it. Right. Cindy also had a reputation as being untrustworthy and dishonest. And it seemed to her sisters that she took financial advantage of their parents And they resented the fact that not only was she living in an apartment rent free, but her parents were also taking care of her boys and paying to raise them. Kath, I also read that within a very short amount of time after the murders, JW, their uncle and executor said, hey, why don't you guys take something from the home to remember your parents by? And so they were all present in the house. One of the girls said, I'd like the piano. Another one said, I would like this rug. One of them did not want anything. And Cindy was there with her boyfriend, David, and starts looking around and she goes, well, I'll take the VCR and the television because they're the most sellable. Wow. Yeah. And so, of course, her sisters were cringing and then they watched her as she sort of went around choosing things to take. So she took a liquor cabinet with all the liquor in it, just various things that she went to see what she could pawn or sell quickly. Yes, exactly. So it's, you know, things like that. Her sisters felt she was grasping. Right. And so following up on that, all four of the Campbell sisters sat down together and had conversations about what to do with their parents' estate. Betty, Jamie, and Michelle, on one side, of course, were concerned about where Cindy's boys were going to be raised. They were also concerned with who would take care of their grandmother, who, as you recall, was living at an apartment rent-free. Then there was also a discussion about holding on to the house until they could get a better sale price. Cindy, again, was the odd man out. She wanted it sold immediately and then began to believe the longer this dragged on that her three sisters were trying to exclude her from her rightful inheritance. On June 22nd, 1982, 12 days after the murders, James and Virginia Campbell were laid to rest. Detectives attended the funeral and sensed the tension between the sisters. In a couple of weeks after their parents' murder, the differences between Cindy and her three siblings were even more obvious. The same day as the funeral, certain family members were asked to come to the police station to give written statements. One of Cindy's older sisters told detectives that Cindy's relationship with her parents was not good. Cindy could be difficult, sort of the black sheep, but the older sister insisted that Cindy got plenty of love. She told detectives that her father mentioned to her that he was tired of supporting his adult daughter. And Kath, by the way, Cindy was number three in the family. Jamie was the youngest one. Still pursuing leads, detectives found and interviewed Cindy's ex-husband. As it turned out, he was in Colorado at the time of the killings and had rock-solid alibi witnesses. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. 
and they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. At one point in the month following the funeral, it was reported that one of the older sisters and Kath, I believe it was Michelle, called detectives in a panic when Cindy took her boys from their uncle JW's house. Remember, he was the one who took custody of the boys. Michelle had said Cindy's boys were crying and did not want to go, but Cindy made them. Michelle feared that something might happen to the boys or that Cindy was trying to find out what they witnessed during the murders. By this point, Kath, the sisters were actually beginning to believe that Cindy and her boyfriend David were possibly involved in their parents' murder. It was Cindy's not-so-subtle greed and Cindy's indifference to her sister's grief that stirred these feelings. Thankfully, after staying with Cindy for just a short time, the boys were dropped back off at JW's house. Around that same time, Jamie called detectives and told them something Cindy had said to her a couple of years prior. Cindy reportedly told Jamie that they'd be better off without daddy because then the girls could have whatever they wanted. Jamie said Cindy even discussed how she would go about making his murder happen. Cindy said she would make it look like a man had done it by wearing heavy boots and walking around an exterior window to leave boot prints. Cindy said she'd also leave Marlboro cigarettes at the scene, use gloves, and maybe even wear a ski mask. And so detectives now had to discern whether the sisters were turning on Cindy because of family history or whether there was actually something there. Then, within months of the murder, Cindy did something that drew a line in the sand. She sued her parents' estate for her inheritance. The estate had not been liquidated at the point Cindy filed suit. Now, the sisters eventually settled the lawsuit giving Cindy title to the four-unit apartment building where she and her grandmother lived, as well as a settlement of $58,500 once assets were liquidated. Eventually, each of the sisters returned to their homes, but kept in close contact with Houston homicide detectives who continued to work any lead that came in. For example, Kath, one of the daughters called the detectives to report that their grandmother informed them that she had seen Virginia's missing wallet in Cindy's closet and James's missing briefcase in the trash outside of Cindy's apartment. By the time detectives became aware of it and searched the place, they were gone. And another time they were called because the oldest boy had been in psychotherapy and they thought he was having memories of something. And detectives interviewed him and it was a false lead. And then in October of 1982, so here we are, four months after the murders, J.W. calls detectives and says, hey, look, I spoke with a woman who said Cindy admitted to her that she killed her parents. The woman's name was Gwen. So detectives went to this woman's business to speak with her. She was super reluctant and didn't want to talk to them. But basically what she said was, hey, there was this point in time in my life where I allowed Cindy to live with me, but it was really short lived because she was obnoxious, essentially, and I kicked her out. But they stayed friends. So she said after Cindy's parents died, she got together to see how she's doing. And Cindy told her that a man named Salino actually killed her parents, but he forced her to be present. 
She said once the murders happened, Salino told her that he would kill her if she told anyone. So Gwen also told detectives that in this conversation she had with Cindy, that Cindy mentioned she accidentally dropped a glove on the floor of her parents' home. Now, this was a fact that was not mentioned in the press. So, of course, detectives were all over it. What did she say? Be specific, blah, 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 blah. They came back a second time to talk to Gwen and they asked her to be recorded. Let us wire you up. Go and talk to Cindy again and get her to make these admissions. And Gwen said, no, count me out of it. Right now, I'm having a lot of problems in my life. My mom was just diagnosed with cancer. My husband and I are on the rocks. I'm not willing to risk harm to myself to get Cindy. And so that wound up being a dead end. And then lastly, Calf, at some point, Cindy found out that detectives obtained a search warrant for her home telephone records. That's right. No cell phones. 1982. Exactly. So when she learned about this, she was so mad. She called one of the detectives and screamed at him on the phone. And she said something like, you can bug my phone, but you're not getting anything on me. She was super bent out of shape about it. All leads were followed and led nowhere with no concrete evidence. After working overtime for months and months, the case went cold. As the years passed, Cindy and David each began dating other people, but stayed in touch with one another. The other Campbell sisters continued to inquire about the investigation with Houston police detectives and hoped that a suspect would be identified. According to an Associated Press article in the Tyler Career Times, two and a half years after the murders, Betty Ann, Michelle and Jamie hired a private detective named Clyde Wilson. He was well-known and required a $10,000 retainer, and his billables were $50 per hour. Betty Ann said she used credit cards and cash advances off these credit cards to pay for the private investigator. Then, three years after the murders, in 1985, the first real break came in. A woman named Teresa came to David's door one day and asked if Charlie was home. She was told by David's roommate that there was no one living there by that name. Teresa then asked if she could come in and use the phone. Do you remember when you had to do that? Like if you were in a pinch? No. Ask people. You never asked anybody to use their phone? No. Oh, that's funny. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Although pay phones were prolific. But I never even remember having an occasion to use one of those. Are you serious? Well, yeah. To call who? Whoever needed to pick me up at school that didn't come to get me. (laughs) (laughs) After using the phone, Teresa chatted with David and the two hit it off. In fact, David asked if she wanted to go out with his friends that evening, and she said yes. David was immediately smitten with her. Kath, you got to look up a picture of her because she was so like 1980s hot. Like she had brown hair and it was kind of big and feathered. feathered. Yep, exactly. (laughs) And she had these ridiculously blue eyes. Like they were super like blue. I was going to say ice blue, but yeah, blue. Okay. But here's the classic part. She had them rimmed with nice blue eyeliner to even highlight them. It was totally like early 80s, like thick eyeliner. Exactly. And then she had that iridescent pink lipstick. Like everything. Exactly. Everything about her. When I saw the photo, I was totally like, oh, (laughs) look at that. She could have been in a Revlon ad. I swear to God. And did she have blue mascara on too? No, she did not. She She should have. I never wore blue mascara. When blue mascara was popular, I was known to wear it a time or two. I never understood it. Well, I didn't either, but it also doesn't go with my eyes. You're like, I didn't either, but I wore it anyway because everybody else did. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the two became serious really quickly, going out two to three times a week and talking frequently on the phone. 
After just two months of dating, David proposed. Teresa told him that she could not seriously consider marriage with him until he was honest with her. She said she knew he was hiding something and he needed to clear the air or she would never be able to trust him. When they first started dating, David told Teresa that his ex-girlfriend's parents had died in a car accident. Wanting to gain her trust, David admitted that this was a lie. Over the course of two separate conversations, he revealed the ugly truth. He told Teresa he shot Cindy's parents to make Cindy's life better. He said Cindy had been molested by her father and treated horribly. David told Teresa that once Cindy received her inheritance, she was supposed to pay him $25,000 for killing her parents. David was now hoping that Teresa would trust him and that they would have a future together. Except Teresa's real name was not Teresa. It was Kim Paris, and she was working for the private investigator who had been hired by Cindy's sisters. Her entire relationship with David had been a well-planned ruse to get him to confess to her. Kim had a transmitter in her purse and two-body microphones, and Houston PD had been brought in to listen to the conversation. So, Kath, what I understand is that she gets the first recording. The private eye, Clyde Wilson, then goes to the police and says, hey, listen to this recording. This is what my investigator obtained. So Houston PD is like, oh, that's pretty cool. But now we need to go back a second time and she needs to elicit this, that and the other thing. And so what I believe occurred is that the Houston police got a search warrant for the conversation so that they could listen. I'm sure they had to, because otherwise none of it's admissible at trial. See, you are a lawyer. I am a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so as a private investigative agency, they don't have to do Miranda warnings and all that kind of crap. Once the police are involved, it's a whole nother thing, because now you're working as an agent for the officer. So, Kath, look at you. I know. Crim Law 101. I love it. Wait, so I'm a freshman in law school, not a lawyer? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) whatever kim kardashian no no you're you're a step above i'm sorry i'm sorry words (laughs) so after kim and david's second night of conversation they drove to a convenience store and this was all pre-planned kim paris got out of the vehicle and police closed in on him for an arrest and kath i read something that he was all shocked he had no idea what was happening he had no concept that he was going to be arrested When he's arrested, he's sort of like, oh, my God, he realized what's happened. In this article that I read, Kim tells herself, look him in the eye. Don't look down. Own what you did. Good for her. Yeah. One of the things that's crazy about this is this was her very first undercover assignment. And she said she staked out his house for two days before making her move because she wanted to know his patterns and all that kind of stuff. Clyde Wilson, the primary investigator, had people watching her the whole time she was either in his house or out on dates or whatever. And Kath, one of the things that she said in these articles is that the minute he told her that his ex-girlfriend's parents were killed in a car accident, she knew that he had something to do with it. Because why would you say that? Right. You just say that they died. Or that they were tragically murdered. Isn't that crazy? How awful. 29-year-old David West was arrested three years after James and Virginia Campbell were murdered. Detectives asked David to call Cindy in order to get her incriminating statements on tape, but instead, David lawyered up. The district attorney wanted more on Cindy, so they put out a press release that an arrest had been made in the Campbell family murders. Then, they had the private investigator, Kim Paris, call Cindy on a wiretapped line, hoping to get incriminating statements. The fake Teresa said, Cindy, this is David's girlfriend, Teresa. He said he killed your parents for you. 
You were supposed to give him money, and I understand that you got your inheritance, and I need that money to bail him out. Kath, I believe during these recorded conversations, Cindy never directly implicated herself in her parents' murders. In February 1985, 28-year-old Cindy was also arrested. Both David and Cindy were being held in the Harris County Jail. While in jail, Cindy's sisters and their uncle hired an attorney to sue Cindy to recover the $58,500 and the apartment building that she had received pursuant to her inheritance settlement. The suit also requested a temporary restraining order against Allied Bank of Texas from removing or transferring approximately $25,000 believed to be deposited there by Cindy. This may have been to pay David after fake Teresa called Cindy, but I'm not completely sure about that. Right. I saw that she had recently deposited $25,000 in a bank, but nobody specifically said this was to give to fake Teresa. In an Associated Press article in the Corpus Christi Caller, the Campbell family's lawyer was quoted as saying, the law does not allow her to profit from wrongdoing, and we're alleging she has profited from her wrongdoing by inheriting some of her parents' assets. However, a different Associated Press article in the Tyler Career Times revealed that the grand jury did not indict Cindy on capital murder. The assistant district attorney said he was not surprised by the grand jury's decision. However, he said charges could still be filed in the future and that the case remained under investigation. The month following her arrest, Cindy walked out of the Harris County Jail and charges were dropped. David West was not so lucky. Charges were not dropped against him, and he remained in jail with two counts of capital murder hanging over his head. His trial was set for December of 1985, nine months after his arrest. And by the time December rolled around, the prosecution had presented enough evidence to the grand jury to now get an indictment against Cindy. Moments before his capital murder trial was to begin, David West pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of murder without the death penalty in the case for Virginia Campbell. The capital murder charge against him in connection with the slaying of James Campbell still stood. The agreement was to take the death penalty off the table in this case if he told prosecutors everything they wanted to know and cooperated in the prosecution of his former girlfriend. In an interesting twist of timing, Cindy was in the courtroom as her former boyfriend entered his guilty plea and agreed to testify against her. Cindy was charged with murder, solicitation of capital murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. If convicted, she faced a maximum life term in prison. In June 1986, four years after the murders of James and Virginia Campbell, jury selection began. According to an Associated Press article by Laura Tolley, David West spent six days on the stand during the month-long trial. He testified that Cindy talked him into the killings, telling the jury that they were wearing masks and that Cindy was wearing oversized, heavy men's boots so the police would think only men committed the crime. They went through a window that Cindy had opened earlier in the evening when she went to borrow money from her mother. David said the two snuck into her parents' bedroom. Cindy turned on the light and fled the bedroom as David opened fire. Prior to their escape, David found Cindy trying to find a glove that she had dropped on the first floor, but he told her to leave it. He wanted to get out of the house. He figured the glove would be too sweaty to get prints from, and frankly, he was right. They then tossed their disguises into a nearby bayou. And Kath, remember at the beginning, the older boy told the officers that he saw a figure that vanished? 
I read somewhere that when the light flicked on, he was so deep into sleep, he thought that maybe his grandparents were going to read to him. Oh. And then he hears like, boom, 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 boom. And he says he saw the fleeting figure, which was his mother. He didn't know it. And then he tried speaking with his grandfather, who didn't answer, of course. Then he woke up his brother and they ran to Maria. David West testified that murdering the Campbells was not about money for him. And despite the fact that Cindy promised to pay him $25,000, she never did. He told the jury Cindy begged him to kill her parents because her father, whom she claimed sexually molested her throughout her adolescence, had resumed his sexual advances toward her. The prosecutor pointed to testimony from several witnesses that said they saw no signs of such abuse. Some witnesses said that Cindy told them she was abused, but her assailants varied. Sometimes she blamed a maid, sometimes her father, sometimes her mother. Like many jurisdictions, a defendant cannot be convicted solely on the testimony of an accomplice, and this fact was hammered home by Cindy's defense attorney. You have to have corroboration from sources other than a co-conspirator or an accomplice. After a month-long trial, journalist Laura Tolley reported that on Saturday, July 5th, 1986, the judge declared a mistrial when the jury said they were hopelessly deadlocked 10 to 2. He did not ask them which way they were leaning, but they could not agree on whether Cindy helped her former boyfriend kill her father. The district attorney again filed charges, and Cindy's retrial began in the spring of 1987. David West once again testified, private investigator Kim Paris testified, and some of her recordings were played for the jury. Cindy's purported sexual abuse claim was also part of the trial and hotly contested by the prosecution. David's friend testified that prior to the Campbell's murder, he sold David a 45 caliber gun that David later told him he threw into the bayou. Cindy's sister Jamie testified that Cindy once told her they'd be better off without their father so that they could have whatever they wanted. I cannot imagine having to testify against my sister. But if she killed your parents? No, I know. Obviously, there's no love lost, but what a nightmare. Cindy's former friend Gwen also testified. She repeated what she had told the police previously, that Cindy told her she stood beside a man named Salino and didn't look when he shot her parents. Cindy also told her she dressed like a man so her kids would not recognize her. Gwen was told that Salino killed the Campbells to make Cindy well. Cindy said that Salino then held a gun to her head and said, if you say anything, I'll shoot you. Gwen corroborated the unreported fact that Cindy told her a glove was left at the scene. Maria Gonzalez, the Campbell's maid, told the jury that nine days before the murders, she had seen Cindy walking around the back of the Campbell's home, raising and lowering windows. She further testified that Cindy began to climb into one of these open windows when Maria confronted her. Maria also told the jury that on the day before the murders, she relocked all of the downstairs windows. While on the stand, Maria said she heard the sound of a window being pushed open and the sound of shots being fired before the boys came and banged on her door. It was revealed that the police investigation determined that the window Maria saw Cindy trying to climb into nine days earlier was the apparent point of entry for the murders. Cindy's own admission to the police that she had gone to her parents' home on the night of the murder at around 10 p.m. to borrow money allowed the jury to infer that she had the opportunity to open the downstairs window while her mother was upstairs getting money for her. 
And Kath, one of the things they talked about during the trial was the fact that detectives had alibi witnesses interviewed in the very beginning after the murders who all said, oh, yeah, you know, like Cindy and David were at this party. Well, through the course of David's admission to the police, he basically said, we were at the club and then a party. And at each place, we made sure that we spoke to various people in various locations at the club and the party. So people would know we were there, but they weren't going to be perfect on a timeline. Then they snuck out, murdered her parents, and then went to a party. That's very smart in the worst possible way. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, it was Cindy's own behavior in seeking the quickest possible inheritance settlement that nailed the case shut. The jury believed greed was the motive. In April of 1987, the jurors deliberated only two hours before returning a guilty verdict against Cindy for the murder of her parents. The jury recommended two life sentences to run concurrently, and the judge agreed. Like all dramatic cases involving wealth, betrayal, and a beautiful heroine. (laughs) With the feathered hair (laughs) and the beautiful blue eyes. Exactly. And blue eyeliner. Iridescent pink lipstick. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Book and television deals came out of it. In an Associated Press article in the Austin American Statesman, in reference to Kim Paris, it said, Although her role in the case is finished, she is still involved in litigation with her former attorney over book and movie royalties. Kim said she hasn't made any money off the notorious case. It was reported that two years after Cindy's conviction, ABC planned to film a TV drama about the story of the undercover investigator who became the girlfriend of David West in 1985 to elicit his confession. Was it actually even made into a movie? Because I don't remember a Beyond a TS that actually went like that. (laughs) Beyond a TS. I do believe there was actually a Beyond a TS, but I can't remember the name of it. (laughs) But I remember reading an article where Kim Paris was very concerned about what the movie was going to be entitled. And she did not want it to be entitled Betrayed by a Kiss. Both Kim and Clyde Wilson drew national attention when they were featured on an episode of The Phil Donahue Show. And Cindy herself even appeared on an episode of Geraldo in the summer of 1989 via satellite hookup from the prison professing her innocence. I'm shocked that they allowed that to happen. I know! David West is serving life with the possibility of parole at Ramsey Prison Farm in Texas. He has been serving a sentence for nearly 40 years and was last denied parole just two months ago. He is scheduled for another review hearing in May of 2024. Cindy died in prison on May 18, 2021, as a result of multiple medical problems. She was 65 years old. Hope you enjoyed the story. Thanks for listening. We also wanted to say a big thank you to one of our listeners who left a review on Apple Podcasts. They said, great research writing and of course delivery. Can't get enough of those in unison bursts of laughter. Can we be friends? And it turns out, yes, we can. Yes, we can. (laughs) (laughs) Not only can we, we want to (laughs) be. Exactly. (laughs) So if you haven't left a review, please do so Mm -hmm. on Apple and on Spotify. Yep. Five stars only, though. Otherwise, you just control yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast if you haven't already. And have a good week. (laughs) 